So in Corinthians, we've been looking at this book for a little while, on and off. We've been with it for a few weeks now, and this section that we're looking at that takes us right into chapter 11, so it's chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with this question of uh, idol feasts, new Christians faced with a challenge, um, and I hope I'm not stealing David's thunder, but just a bit of context for the reading, uh, faced with the challenge of how to be a Christian when your work and your life have embedded in them relationships and practices with non-Christians that now challenge your faith. And specifically in Corinth, the issue was that lots of people had jobs, trades, professions that had trade guilds associated with them, and those trade guilds had their own uh, feasts and celebrations, they had their own priests, they had their own shrines for worship, and they also had uh, feasts at which meat was offered and sacrificed to the god of their trade. Probably the closest equivalent we've been saying going along is is, uh, Freemasonry, I suppose, in some respects, because these guilds, these trade guilds, were places where you could go to get on in your career. Uh, And so being part of your trade guild and going along to these feasts and meetings was important for making the right connections. So what's a Christian to do? Go along to a, a what is effectively a pagan feast and eat meat dedicated to a false god um, or, or absent themselves? And so they wrestled with this question and asked Paul, what are we supposed to do? And so Paul, uh, in the chapters that we've been looking at, has been asking them to think about uh, what they do. Some of them chose just to go along anyway and say, yeah, it's just a, it's just a pagan god. It doesn't mean anything and they'll go. But Paul's been saying, well, what about the young believer who sees you going? You know, what's the effect in our day on the the, the believer uh, who's getting free of of drugs or alcohol addiction if you cavalierly go off to the pub and say, no, this is fine. That makes it hard for them. And so, uh, in the thinking in this passage, Paul's been challenging the Christians to think not just about what suits them, their needs, their job, their career advancement, but what's the impact on the people watching them? And asking them to think about, and anyway, what are you doing when you eat food that's been dedicated to a demon? Because that's what lies behind these pagan deities and so on. So, that's the wee background and intro. Uh, David may just repeat everything I've just said, and that wouldn't be, uh, that's uh, my apology if if he does that. From verse 23 then, Paul talking about freedom, the believer's freedom. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, Why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? 
So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Amen. David. Thank you, Alistair. I'm just going to read again uh, some of the words from the verses that we read in chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Those are some amazing words, and they're given right at the end of this whole, this rounds up the whole passage of instruction over what are you to do in this predicament where you find yourself in a pagan society, it is going against the grain of what you're being called to in Christianity. Uh, How do you actually continue to honor God in that? How do you thread the needle on some of those issues uh, that intermingle culture and religion and worship? And he gives, in a way, a maxim, a heading that goes over everything in order to help people interpret what they should do. But he uses some pretty lofty language to do that. Uh, so often in Christianity, we, we throw out phrases, and it can be helpful to slow down and think, what do we really mean by them? So, how do you really do things to the glory of God? How do you do everything to the glory of God? And in fact, I think a better question in this passage, because he's, it goes on to be so practical, if he's summing up everything by saying you do everything to the glory of God, well, doesn't it push us to really ask, what is the glory of of God. So since Alistair's helpfully filled in so much of the context, and I am thankful for that, by the way, we can get straight into this sort of main stuff, if you will. Firstly, I want to think about what is the glory of God, because that informs everything else that they're supposed to do and we're supposed to do today. And then secondly, I want to think about the glory of God as it regards, or as it interacts with our freedom as Christians. And thirdly, and briefly, the glory of God in Christ Jesus, where Paul takes his thoughts to a conclusion in this section. What is the glory of God? Well, Paul's not talking to a church who are surrounded by uh, atheists, non-believers, or secularists that, like we sometimes find today. It's actually, they're surrounded by people who have a lot of belief. They have a lot of gods. They've got other gods, um, rival gods, competing gods. And in one sense, uh, in terms of the biblical history, that's nothing new. Uh, God's people have always been given instruction uh, in culture surrounded by other people who believe a bunch of different things about who God is and how you should worship him. And it's the same today. Believing in no God is the same thing. It just means you're maybe your own God, your own heart, your own beliefs, your own ideas. Something's God. Everybody's a worshiper. That's Paul's point, and that's the point of the, all of the teaching of the Old and New Testament. And so he's speaking to a people who do give glory to other gods, but he's saying, how do you give glory to the true God? And he is looking to, with a laser focus, get their attention on the God that they are now called to, and what he is like, and what he's revealed about himself, and how they're to worship him. And that story, the God that 
these people are being called to worship and the God that you and I are being called to worship and the God that is, demands worship of everyone actually because he's so glorious, he has a long history of revealing who he is and how he wants to be worshipped. It's the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh has made himself known. And actually Paul is used, just in, earlier in the chapter, he's used an extended Old Testament example about Israel's wandering around in idolatry because see, there's actually only two options. When you come to do anything in life, two very stark options. Am I going to glorify God as he's revealed himself or am I going to be an idolater? And that's, Paul couldn't make that choice more clear. In verse 10 earlier, we heard about the wilderness wanderings because they got caught up in idolatry and he's saying, don't be like this. So what he made it clear what did idolatry look like. Well, what did glorifying God look like? Well, this is the God that he is talking about who gloriously delivered an entire people group from slavery and emancipated them and liberated them and supernaturally parted waters and crushed their enemies in order to free them. And that was part of God's glory. And another example of God's glory was that he appeared as a pillar of fire to those people who had no hope and no help and no satnav to get to where they were going to show them where they might go. He fed them and he looked after them supernaturally. This is the God whose glory, when he gave them a place to worship, filled that worship with such brilliant radiance that it would kill anyone who gazed on it directly or who did not approach God in the right or the correct way. It's the same God we're talking about. And that was how they would have understood his glory. And that's the tradition that these people are being called into. Is this is the background. This is how this God has revealed himself. You know, sometimes we can read through maybe the likes of the temple that Solomon was going to build, and the sheer volume and worth of everything that went into that, the most precious materials from all around the world at the time, and the stately grandeur of the size of it, I think it's extravagant. It was supposed to reflect something of, not in totality, something of God's glory. God's glory is what caused one of perhaps the holiest men that ever prophesied in God's name, Isaiah, to cry out, I'm a man of unclean lips, when he saw even a part of it. God's glory is so precious and so wonderful that people haven't known what to do with it or how to handle it, especially before Jesus Christ. God's glory is actually, in a sense, preached everywhere because the Psalms tell us that we have to ascribe glory to his name because his name carries glory, but also that the skies and the heavens and the sheer intricacy and wonder and beauty of nature preach about God's glory and are a revelation of it, and should teach us and tell us something about the glory of God. Now, I know that might seem like an arbitrary list of examples, but it's actually not, because if you think about it, if you track with me, what do all these things have in common? The Israelites being wiped out, the people being delivered, the pillar of cloud, the temple and its grandeur, the temple being filled with either brilliant light or an angelic heavenly vision, it's all things that can be seen. It's all things that can be perceived. It's all things that God discloses to people. It's actually a gift of his grace that in the Old Testament, he was always revealing things about himself, going, look at this. This is something of my glory. This is something that can be perceived. It's, his glory is connected because, of course, God is infinitely glorious in and of himself, 
But we're here and we're as church and we're as people and we're trying to think about how we glorify God. And we start by that going, well, he's actually revealed something of it to us. He's always let it be perceived. It's intrinsic to his person. He's infinitely glorious in himself, but he's revealed it in his identity to us. And of course, then we get to Jesus in the New Testament. And Jesus points to a day when God's glory is going to come in power. He's going to come back and he's going to judge the earth. And everyone's going to see it then, regardless of whether they believe him or not or like him or not. And it's going to shine and be visible. But it's also in the New Testament in that Romans 1, we're taught that everybody actually knows something about this. Everyone knows something about the truth of the fact that uh, in Romans 1, Paul says that God's eternal attributes, his divine nature and his uh, infinite power have actually been perceived by humankind all since the beginning of the earth. This is what John Calvin called the divine sense. It means that some, all, all of us within us deeply know that there is a God there and he is glorious and is worthy of our worship. And so the New Testament is totally consistent with the Old Testament about that there is a glory that can be seen and perceived by humans in God. Jesus shows us perfectly how this is to be seen then as his followers. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, you're to do good works. Why? Not so you can be saved, not so that God will like you any better. He loves you freely in his infinite grace if you trust in Jesus. But why does he say to do the good works? So that people, unbelievers, other people will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if God's glory is something that can be and is perceived, how does that work out in our life and experience? Well, Jesus said, it's as you do keep his commandments, love like he loves. That's what causes people to go, there's something real about that God and his people. There's something glorious about the way they conduct themselves and the way they live their lives. So that they may see your good work, so that his glory will be perceived and seen by people. And they'll believe, they'll repent of sin, they'll change because it's a testament to God's glory. I mean, think of it in your own experience. How else can you as a sinner, and knowing where you came from and your background and your baggage, and then you're walking around one day and you're going, my life's different. My life's changed. That is glorious. That is incredible. It's only possible to do that by the power of God, and it is his glory to do that in our lives. Jesus actually demonstrated this. In Matthew 9, 8, he's healing people. He's working miracles. Uh, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And pe- it says in Matthew 9, 8, people were afraid in response and they gave glory to God. It's actually an amazing principle there in that the fear of God, the reverence for him, the respect for him, the getting a sense and a perception of how weighty and how amazing it is what he's doing. That's what precedes glorifying God. It's actually impossible to glorify God unless you first acknowledge and agree with and give assent to who he is. And that he's worthy of that position and that honor. We speak of glorious days, glorious sunsets, um, glorious times that we have in worship. And all that is good and it's right. And even people who don't believe in God say these things. And without knowing it, they're actually ascribing something of God's glory as seen in a sunset. Because it's his. He made it. It's his to display that. It's his show to put on every morning and every evening. It is his glory and his radiance coming through. Uh, John Piper said, I believe the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. I believe the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. 
You see, God in himself is the source of all goodness, any goodness we experience, any enjoyment in life, all the highest ideals that we have and that we believe in for our society morally and in terms of justice, truth and hope and purity, all those things find their purest expression in God. And so his glory is his revealing that to us. It's us getting in on that. It's us getting to see that. So his glory is something that we experience as God lets us perceive it, but it's also something then we as Christians rightly ascribe to God, to God be the glory. It's something we experience, but it's something we rightly give and ascribe to God. And it's nothing less and nothing more than acting according to our God-given function in creation. Why do the skies and the heavens proclaim, proclaim the glory of God? Because they're doing exactly what they were created to do. And you and I were created to worship God and be in fellowship and communion with Him. And that has been badly broken. But praise God through Jesus Christ, that's being restored. And we're able to live like we were meant to live. Not perfectly, but that's how we give glory to God. Man's chief end, another way of saying it, his whole purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here. That's why everyone's here, whether they know it or not. That's where we start, is glorifying God. That's what the glory of God is, and that's how, well, how do we get in on that? The glory of God, secondly, and how it relates to our freedom. And that's where Paul starts to break this down and get very specific. Well, we've got to enjoy our liberty. That's what one of Paul's points here when he's talking about the Christian's freedom. Verse 25, he says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for... And he quotes here from a psalm, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. It's actually from the great kingly Psalm 24. Why does he do that? Well, he's basically saying eat whatever. Why? Because much like Jesus is teaching, food doesn't defile you. That pagan deity that may have had something to do with that food at that point, they aren't a powerful God. They don't have any animated life in and of themselves. The only person that made that food is the only being who has the power to bring anything about it's his. And there's so many things in our world and our creation that are tainted and twisted and turned into, used for dark purposes, but actually they have their source in the only being in the whole universe who can give rise to any life, who can create or make anything. And actually, Jewish people had an understanding of this because their God was the God of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, nothing excluded that he didn't make. And so they had a high view of the creation. And Paul's talking to a society that's now mixed with uh, some Greek philosophy and some pagan uh, deities who, they don't have such a high view of the creation. They're actually in sometimes more of what we call Gnostic. They think only the immaterial, the spirit world is what good. And there's a fair bit of that around today. And he's like, no, get back to Genesis. God made all of this. This is essentially good. And this is essentially liberating to have this high view of creation. He's lifting off the sort of super spiritual religious burden because enjoying God and his creation is important. That's why he made it. There's also an issue of some of these people, there's an affordability issue. They're, they can't really turn down meat. If they turn down meat at every possible uh, instance of it maybe having had contact with paganism, they might never get to eat meat. It was more of a rare commodity in the society we're talking about. I think what's so interesting is in terms of this redeeming creation, from verses 27 to 29, you've got specific social instructions and gatherings. And 
He's showing them how to glorify God in their society there. And interestingly, he doesn't say, just don't go do anything. Just in case you never know that the safest thing is just to avoid any contact with those kinds of people, other religions. He doesn't do that. And neither are we to do that. We don't actually, in Christianity, get to be a silo kind of subculture where we opt out of the world and the society that we're placed in. Because if we're people glorifying God, we've actually been put there and gifted to it in order that we might be an example like Jesus said. How could we, people who don't know God, give glory to God when they see our good works if they never see our good works? If we're not even around for them to be seen. He's saying, don't opt out. Go to the meals. There's nothing intrinsically sinful about being with people that aren't saved, that are unbelievers, that aren't sinners. It seems painfully obvious, but they needed reminding of it or... Maybe they needed helping with it because it was a new issue for them, but we need reminding of it. Salt and light is to have an influence where you are. There's no opt-out clause. And so where do we get the prohibitions? Well, he's talking then there might be an issue. Somebody's conscience might be weaker than yours. And right back in chapter 8, you'll remember in verses 9 to 10, Paul makes it clear there's total difference of conscience it's not a universal thing. People get saved from different backgrounds and different circumstances. And, you know, the Lord writing by the Holy Spirit and Scripture has a wonderful awareness of these things and has given us things that give us frameworks and guidelines, but don't cross every I and every T. You can't go to the New Testament or the Bible anywhere to find out whether you should go to any kind of social engagement or whether you should engage in every kind of activity. It's not there, and the lists and the rules aren't there. And for people who really like lists and rules, that's kind of annoying. It would be easier if it was just all spelled out in black and white. But Paul is giving general principles, all connected to the glorifying of God, for how people are to navigate these difficulties. And so he's saying, if you enjoy creation, you enjoy what God has given, and redeem it, and give thanks to God for it, because the only way that food could be on a plate is through his gift and through his power. None of the other demons or deities have any power. But if then there's another person, that complicates it. If they think that's an issue, or they think it's wrong, or it's an unbeliever serving it, saying, by the way, this is served to idols before, think about what's that, what's that going to cause them to think. Conscience isn't universal. We have freedom and difference on these matters. And interestingly, though, Notice Paul doesn't say your conscience has to change. I'm referring, verse 29, to the other person's conscience, not yours. God gives us such amazing freedom and choice in how we live our Christian life with matters of conscience, and we're to exercise this to his glory. But we are all accountable before God for ourselves. I'm not going to answer for anybody else's conscience. And so Paul is stopping them from getting mixed up. Or the real good safeguard of this is it's like you can't be a legalist. You know, the person who likes to go around with the clipboard and make sure that everybody's got the same rules on them on whether it's eating, uh, drinking certain things, going to certain places. He's saying you can't do that either. They're, your conscience isn't bound by them. Someone else probably should accommodate in the name of love every now and then, um, even if their matter conscience is clear on certain matter. But you don't get to go around and hammer people and say, you need to come to the standard on a thing that isn't actually cut and dry in the Bible. We're not talking about sin. We're not talking about adultery and uh, immorality or lust or drunkenness or any of those, you know, the big ticket ones or even lies or anything like that. But in the things that we have freedom uh, in Colossians, food and drink and whether we keep certain holy days and Sabbaths, 
there's freedom. And the main principle is that you enjoy creation, you enjoy your relationship with God, and you love others. This is how we honor other people and honor God. But also to the person who enjoys his freedom. Well, he's saying it's, you know, not there to be used and shoved in people's faces like a loaded gun. It's there to bless, actually, other people. So the second principle then he comes to in terms of glorifying God with their freedom is to love others with that liberty. In verse 23, there's uh, these quote marks. They'll be in quote marks in some of your Bibles, and he's likely quoting back the original letter. I have the right to do anything, you say, but he says not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but Paul says not everything is constructive. Christianity for new believers, uh, believers who have not been in the faith a long time, which is what we have here, it's, he's talking about asking better questions. So not how far can I go when I'm still on the lines or what can I actually do? Just give me the answer. Tell me what I can and can't do. He's saying, well, that might not be actually where to go with it. It's more when I'm trying to glorify God, when I'm trying to build up my own faith, when I'm trying to make sure that I love other people around me, how should I go about that? So not jumping to the, what can I do or what can I not do? Where, where is the line? What side can I stay of it? Well, how can I glorify God? In light of who he is and what we thought about at the start, in light of this great and glorious God who has revealed himself, who has been so kind in Jesus Christ to fully and finally reveal himself that I can trust in him and be cleansed of sin, remembering that, remembering the gospel, and then acting in light of that. And I think what I love about the Bible and our faith is that God likes us to grow into maturity, and that's so clear in the fact that every I and every T is not crossed on these kind of matters. There is so much freedom. There are general principles, but God has given us huge, important general guidelines for how to actually live this out. There's an amazing text in the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. Um, what does God require of you, O man, but to love mercy and justice and do righteousness and walk humbly with your God. And in some sense, God's teaching of how we actually conduct ourselves in terms of others and our liberty, how to glorify him, well, it's as old as the hills. It's having humility to go, my needs actually might not be the most important thing, or my freedom might not be the most important thing. Remember, he's giving this in the context of talking about idolatry. So you can get into a situation as a Christian where you're like, my conscience is clear on this matter, whether it's drinking or going to certain social things, and I'm really going to use that, and I'm going to really enjoy it to the point where it'll never be changed. Nobody can make me change that, and I'll never alter that. It's like, do you now love that freedom more than you actually love the God who gave it to you? Human heart is, again, as Calvin said, an idol factory. It's so easy to slip into once you're like, oh, this is a part of my Christian life. Actually, that one part can become an idol pretty quickly, and you've left behind God who delivered you from slavery. And so, that's why he gives these principles. It's not that anybody gets to change what you have come to as a settled matter on your conscience. It's that waving around your freedom like a loaded gun isn't always going to be loving people well. How are you going to glorify God? Because what's the great commandment that Jesus gave us? You love the Lord your God with everything you've got, and then the other people, that's yourself. And why did he say God first? Because you give glory to God first. He's the only one worthy of that. But your love for others has to flow out as an expression of the fact that my whole life is about glorifying God and loving other people well. Even though I don't have 
an endless manual of how to do it in every instance. I think Paul knew, and I think the Holy Spirit knows that when we have God's glory in mind at the front of our minds and deep in our hearts with gratitude for what he's done for us, then these things have a way of working themselves out. These things have a way of becoming apparent to us as believers of what we should or shouldn't do in any given instance. And this is all because we want people to embrace Jesus. We want people to glorify him. We want people to see that he is worthy of turning from their sin and living the life that he calls them to because it's wonderful. Because it's countercultural, this kind of love. How much do you hear in society today about what are my rights? Well, we need to improve rights for this group and that group. And we do. For a lot, there are lots of oppressed groups, and I totally agree with that. But we have an obsession with rights. Whereas to live like this is actually to make a statement, to go, I'm actually so focused on how I can love other people. I'm actually so focused on how I can build them up and encourage them in their faith and put that first over what could be my right. Same as Paul laid it down, his right to have a wage at times. That was his right. Didn't always use it because it wasn't always loving, wasn't always glorifying to God as he understood it. We want people to see the beauty and the power of the gospel. How do we apply this? Well, how does my, might not be idle me today. I'm going to put a strong bet that nobody's struggling with whether to go to the meat market and get meat that might have been sacrificed to idols. But how does my speech glorify God? Not just in person. How does my speech on the internet, is this comment I'm going to leave glorify God? Is this debate I might get embroiled in, is it actually going to love or glorify God? Is this text I'm going to send going to glorify God? Can you see in your mind already how if that's front and center, the glory of God, how it just starts to change things, just starts to change our conduct and the way we are? Not because we're obsessed with keeping rules, but because we really love God and we really want Him to get glory from everything that we do. How does my recreation, what I choose to do with my time and spend it and how I choose to spend my money and hang out with, how do these affect the faith of maybe new Christians? that I know, when they know that I do that, or don't do that. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's really building them up. Maybe it's not. Paul talks here that we don't give offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. It's not just the church. There's people from all faiths and none watching us as Christians. You think about it. We are claiming to have the answer to the problem of the human heart and to where we will spend eternal life. Okay, So if somebody who believes in Islam is the answer, or someone who is still a Jew today, or someone who is a militant atheist is watching you, then what does that look like? How does that shake out? Do you love like your supposed Savior loves? We don't live our lives for other people, but can you see how we really want the gospel to shine to all those people because we love them, because we want them to experience the love and the power of Jesus? And friends, it's all about Jesus. Because once we understand, firstly, the glory of God, and then we start to interpret that through our freedom, and we start to make our freedom become part of how we glorify God. And lastly, that is getting us on the way to what Paul says at the end, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Because we're told he is the perfect imprint of the glory of God. You see the tightness of Paul's argument? Do everything to the glory of God, Jesus is the perfect way to demonstrate how you do that. Hebrews 1 3 says, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. You know, in terms of rights and stuff, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus 
didn't consider being equal with God anything to hang on to, but he gave all that up that he might win you and me and reconcile us back to God. What greater an example do you need of sometimes maybe foregoing what you would like or what you think you should be able to do because you love others? Because he gave it all and none of us will be asked to pay a price like he gave. Friends, there are only two options. There's the glory of God and using our freedom as part of that and imitating Jesus within that, or there's idolatry. And idolatry is subtle, but whatever we behold, we actually become like. You ever notice in the Old Testament how the foreigners would be indicted because they were worshiping pagan gods, and the Psalms will often tell how they became dumb like their idols. Friends, if you and I are called to worship the true and living God, worshiping anything else is going to dull our senses and it's going to make us become dumb. And so, fix our eyes on Jesus. Set him as the expression of the invisible God before us as the way in which we interpret and encounter everything in our lives. Looking to bring him glory, looking to make his name famous, hoping that his gospel shines that little bit brighter because of how we are that other people might see it and come to it. May he bless his word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are infinitely glorious. And Lord, while we cannot fully apprehend this or ever experience it to its uh, greatest degree in this life, God, we thank you that your glory is something that you have made visible. We thank you that you have been communicating it to people since the world began. We thank you that you have made us in your image to know something of your glory. And so, Lord, we ask your help in this week, for we depend ask your help this week to glorify you, to be in our thoughts, to be in our words, to be in the very seat of our heart and our emotions, that all that we do, whether we eat or drink, where we go and how we think may be done to your glory and your, your, yours alone, O oh Lord, because you are so worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.